Well, good evening. It's good to see everybody. Storm clouds are gathering on the horizon in, uh, in the Roman Empire as chapter 3 opens tonight. So we're glad that you're here. As we continue looking at culture shock, 1 Peter chapter 3, we will be in verses 14 to 20 tonight. So I hope you'll turn there and uh, join us in just a moment. We are now to the final 42 verses of the chapter, or rather of the, uh, the book. And we're looking at seven of those verses tonight. So I want to remind you that next Wednesday night we will not be having any midweek Bible study. It's Thanksgiving week and a lot of people are gone on Wednesday before Thanksgiving on Thursday. So we will not be having Bible study next week. But we will come back the following week and go for three more weeks after that on Wednesdays before we take the Christmas break. It's hard to believe Christmas is 40 days away, isn't it? My goodness. I haven't got all your shopping done yet, so I need to keep shopping for some of you. So anyway, we will wrap up First Peter at the end of January. So that's whenever we will wrap up our study together. Let's pray and we'll get started. Father, thank you tonight for the opportunity to open up your word, your life-giving word. God, it is not just instruction for us. It's inspiration. It's, it's words from the Holy Spirit. It's everything that we need to, to live for you in our culture. And so, God, thank you for the opportunity every Wednesday night that we have to come. Open up your word. Go in depth into it. Study it and find out exactly what you want to say to us. So I pray that you'll do that tonight. Lord, thank you for those who have joined us online as well. Pray your blessings upon them. Blessings for those who are here in person. And we just pray your word will speak tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, First Peter chapter 3, storm clouds are gathering in the Roman Empire. Peter was writing to Gentile believers in Asia Minor, just south of the Black Sea. Remember, he wrote this book in 63 AD. They were enduring mild persecution. The believers were not heavy persecution, mild persecution. They were being marginalized for their faith. They were being, there were comments made about them. They were uh, people were condescending to them, their discrimination against them, kind of like the persecution that we face. In the U.S., we're really not in danger of heavy persecution, of being killed for coming to church, uh, being persecuted, or beaten, or imprisoned because you're a follower of Jesus. That's not our culture, but it, neither was it their culture either. So, it, persecution going on, but it was of a mild type. So, so far in the letter, he talks about how to be a witness for Christ in this type of culture and what type of character you should possess as a believer in Jesus. Honor and pray for and obey governing authorities. He talked about that. Slave-master relationships, husband-wife relationships. Talked about all those, but in chapter 3, starting in verse 13, everything changes. Peter's tone changes. It becomes different. He starts writing differently. And he basically is telling them that storm clouds are gathering on the horizon. And persecution is going from mild to heavy. Going from just being marginalized or discriminated against as a believer to actually being beaten and imprisoned and killed. And it's only one year away. So as he's writing this, 63 AD, you remember Nero, the maniacal emperor of Rome, is in power. He hates Christianity. He is about to begin 
the worst persecution of Christianity so far since Christ has resurrected. The following year, you know what happened. After Peter wrote this, 63 A.D., you know what happened from history in 64 A.D., only one year later. Nero uh, set fire to the city of Rome. Two different respected theologians. I know there's a lot of debate today. Well, did he really, was he, did he really set fire to the city? Two respected theologians of the day said, yes, he did that. Two reasons. Number one, primary reason was that things were going, not going well in the, in, the, in the empire, and you need a diversion. You need a good war, or you need a good fire, or something to divert attention away from you and back on something else. So that's a good reason to set fire to the city, because things were not going well in the empire. But the second reason was he had in mind, Nero did, to build this palatial complex, beautiful new uh, a uh, place for the emperor to live and to reign and a large statue of himself. And he had it all in the works and ready to build. He, he just needed the land cleared of buildings and city so he could build it. So he set fire to the city of Rome, but he blamed it on a group that he hated with a passion. Blamed it on the Christians. Small group of believers there in, in Rome that followed, followed Jesus, and so he blamed it on them. So as a result of blaming the fire, the Christians set this fire, and so he had them persecuted, had them beaten, had them imprisoned, and had many Christians killed. I mentioned to you a couple of times about how he would line his garden parties with the lights of burning Christians. He would put Christians on poles, dip them in oil, set them upright, and set them on fire, and the burning Christians, as they would line his garden would be the light for his garden parties. He killed Peter. He killed Paul. Uh, he killed a lot of their leaders. So Peter is writing tonight saying within, within a year, persecution is going to start. So how do you need to be? And that's where he picks up. Letter A, or rather, uh, first of all, number one on your outline tonight, how to be blessed in suffering for Christ, verses 14 to 17. Look at verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. The word suffer there is the word pasco in Greek. We get the word pascal from it, Jesus being the sacrificial lamb, the suffering servant, the pascal lamb. The, we get the word passion from it, Jesus' passion. So, if you suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be makarios. Jesus, the same word he used in the Sermon on the Mount. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience, verse 16, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. The word literally means blush, turn red in the face. Verse 17, for it is better, it's more excellent, the word means, to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. 
Now, let's look through those verses and <clears throat> kind of see what God is, is telling us through Peter. First of all, number one, uh, letter A under number one there, have no fear or be troubled. Peter is saying suffering is about to come. So he emphasized the inner confidence that a Christian needs to have when suffering happens. When you are persecuted, there needs to be an inner confidence that you have. I don't think you and I would probably have that right now, just to be honest. If all of a sudden suffering started happening to us on a large scale, because already if you just look at where we're persecuted mildly, maybe laws are passed or maybe things go against Christians, we get angry. Well, they wouldn't do that to Muslims. We get angry. Whereas Peter says, have no fear. Don't be troubled. And then he tells us why in just a moment. Now, here's what I find interesting about verse 14. What is interesting is that Peter does not say that, that suffering is definitely coming. He says, it's a possibility. It might happen. Now, that's kind of odd. The Bible usually doesn't talk like that. In fact, he uses in, in verse 14 a rare construction in biblical Greek. Biblical Greek is called Koine Greek. It's different than classical Greek. Biblical Greek is more slang. It's more the language of the people. It's kind of like Texan is the English. It's got its own little slang to it. And so Koine Greek rarely, if ever, uses the construction Peter uses here. And what he uses is the Greek word a, E-I, with the optative. And what that means is potential or a possibility. In other words, you might start going through suffering. The Bible usually doesn't talk like, well, this might happen. The Bible usually talks about certainties, prophecies. This is going to happen. But Peter here says, eh, it's very possible. Got a good chance this time next year. You might start going through some persecution. So it's interesting the wording that Peter uses here. But he tells us, whenever you do, have no fear. In other words, literally, do not fear their fear. It's a strong expression because it has, contains what's called the cognate accusative. One of the strongest ways of saying, don't be afraid because they're afraid. It's literally what it means. So when people start persecuting you, they're doing it because they fear you. Christians, they fear us. So you don't have the same fear they have. Don't let them scare you. And it's interesting because Peter is saying, he is quoting Isaiah chapter 8. What happened in Isaiah chapter 8? Well, if you remember... Isaiah has just learned that God told him that the people of Judah and the people of Jerusalem are going to reject him as a prophet. They're not going to believe him. They're not going to respond to his ministry. But God says, I will take care of you. So, no need to turn there. Just let me read it right quick. 
Isaiah chapter 8, here's what God told Isaiah. For the Lord spoke to me and said with his strong hand upon me, and he warned me not to walk in the way of the people. Do not call conspiracy what they call conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be in dread. But the Lord of hosts will honor as holy you. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. He was quoting, Peter was, those words from Isaiah. God will take care of you as he took care of Isaiah. Now, Isaiah eventually met a martyr's death. So did Peter. But he's saying when you go through the persecution, don't fear like they fear. Now, people are perverse. They don't like you trying to live right. They don't like righteousness. In fact, righteousness irritates people. The fact you're probably here tonight probably secretly bothers them. Oh, they're at church again. When are they The fact you follow Christ closely probably bothers some, probably irritates some. Oh, they think they have to be at the church every time the doors are open. Family members, friends, neighbors. You're going to get that. Because people in general don't like righteousness. It irritates them. And so Peter said, when that happens, don't fear like they fear. You fear God. Now look at verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ. Letter B on your outline. Honor Christ as holy. In your hearts, honor Christ. Now, in verse 15, Peter uses three strong imperatives and three what's called decisive aorists as he writes. What that means is what he's telling them is strong. It doesn't sound like somebody who thinks suffering is only a possibility. But that's how he couched it to begin with. Rather, he says, being fearful, we should commit ourselves afresh to Christ our Lord. Isaiah 8.13, commit yourself to the Yahweh of armies, the God of armies, by purposing in your heart to live for Him. So when persecution starts, he says, sanctify or set aside the Lord God in your hearts. Don't let anything in your heart be more important than God. Don't let anything in your heart when persecution picks up Don't let anything in your life be more important than Jesus. Set aside that you're going to have no idols and at the very center of who you are, you are Christ's. Nothing's going to hinder you. That's what it means to honor Christ as holy in your hearts. Look at verses 16 and 17. Be pre- or rather, a letter C, verse 15 again. Be prepared to make a defense of your hope. Now, look at verse 15. In your heart's honor, Christ is holy. Always being prepared to make a defense. The word defense there, apologia. We get the word apology or apologetics from it. A defense to anyone who asks you for a reason. The word for reasons, logos. For anybody that asks you a word. For the hope that's in you, you be ready to tell them why. 
with gentleness and with respect. Let's talk about that for a moment. It is interesting to me that Peter uses a courtroom setting to describe persecution and people asking you in the midst of it, why are you a Christian? He uses a courtroom scene. When the lost world fancies themselves as a judge, you be prepared as a defense attorney to state your case. I saw a video clip the other day of a judge who was angry at a defense attorney because he was not prepared for the case. They showed up, they started having the trial, and the judge stops and says, uh, Sir, it is very apparent you are not prepared for this case. Your defendant's counting upon you. And he just really raked him over the coals. So, when the judges out there in the world ask you, you make a case, why are you a Christian? Is it on the tip of your tongue ready to say it? We should have reasons why we're living as we are, why we're followers of Christ, why we're believers on the tip of our tongue when any opportunity arises so we can explain our faith. Do you? Not usually. Somebody says, why, why are you a Christian? Well, uh, well, I was raised that way. I, I went to church, and we, it goes, usually goes back to church. I went to church, you know, parents took me to church, and um, our defense is we were raised that way. <laughs> is that why do you have a hope within you? No. It's because of what Jesus did. So if anybody ever asks, and when persecution turned up, they did ask. Be ready. Have a defense. Have an apologetic. Now, they may not per se ask per se, why is your hope? But hope is the root cause of our behavior. We should be ready to answer quickly. Sometimes we look back and go, oh, man, I had a great opportunity. I wasn't ready. Man, it was a great place for me to share my faith, and I walked off, and I didn't, and oh, my goodness, we were ready. And he says, be ready every single time. Moments notice, be ready. Why do you have hope within you? Why are you a believer? Be ready to answer. But don't do it with a mean spirit. Did you notice he said, be ready to give a defense, the reason, the hope that's in you, yet do it with gentleness. Meekness is what the word means, and with respect. Somebody asks you, don't get defiant or obnoxious or angry. Do it with the right spirit. One theologian said, whenever a Christian growls and grumbles, they spoil their witness. Peter himself 
knows what he's talking about because he did this exact same thing. Acts chapter 2. The council asked for a reason. Why do you believe as you believe? And then Peter was ready. And then again in Acts chapter 3. And then again in Acts chapter 4. And then again in Acts chapter 5. Four times, Peter, boom, boom, boom. He had a reason and an answer, and he was bold. So be prepared when the persecution starts to make a defense of your hope. And then letter D, verses 16 and 17, keep a good conscience. Notice he says, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better, it's more excellent for you to suffer for doing good, than be it be God's will, than you suffer for doing evil. A good conscience is possible when we know that our suffering is for good behavior, not for bad behavior. A simple explanation from us can take the wind out of their sails whenever we give a simple reason as to why we're following Christ. So, you can keep a good conscience. And Paul said sometimes your conscience can become seared. You know what searing is. It's when you take a hot iron and you make something where, the, say for example, they sear your nerves where you can't feel them anymore. And Paul in 1 Timothy 4.2 says your conscience can become seared, can become to the point where you don't feel anything anymore. So make sure your conscience stays sensitive to them and to God and what's going on. And don't sear your conscience and become hardened toward all that's going on out there. Keep a good conscience when persecution starts. And then let's go to the last few verses, and we'll spend the rest of our time on these. There are a couple of um, controversial verses we'll look at. Number two on your outline there, Jesus' example of suffering, verses 18 through 20. It's almost as if Peter was saying, okay, y'all know a little bit about suffering, but now let's talk about someone who knows a lot about suffering, and that's Jesus. You haven't even touched the hem of his garment, what he had to suffer so let's look at his suffering. Verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Verse 19. In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Verse 20. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience Waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. We'll stop there. In fact, I only read 20 tonight because it lends interpretation to verses 19. But we're only going to talk about, we'll pick up 20 next week, verses 18 and 19, and we'll close. But there are two powerful verses. First of all, verse 18. Verse 18 is one of the shortest and simplest verses on the atonement, but one of the richest uh, of Jesus is the ultimate example of suffering for doing what is good. Notice what he said in verse 18, for Christ also suffered the just, or rather, rather, uh, once for sins. 
He emphasizes the complete sufficiency of Jesus' sacrifice. Hebrews 7, Hebrews 9, Hebrews 10 all tell us that when Jesus made a sacrifice, we don't need any more sacrifices. It was the ultimate. Once for all, nothing more is needed. It doesn't need added to by your human effort. It doesn't need the Catholic Mass every, every time they meet to re-go through it all over again. The sacrifice. Jesus did it all. Once for all. So the emphasis is on the finality rather than the extent. Once for all, if you had to emphasize any of the words, it's not once for everybody the emphasis. The emphasis is on once. Once for everybody. And that's the emphasis Peter's giving. The purpose of Jesus' sacrifice was to bring us to God. The just for the unjust. Remember, he's talking about being just and unjust and suffering earlier. Perfect example. Jesus did not deserve to suffer, but he did for you, for me. Look at the phrase that he might bring us to God. Folks, in the Greek, it is a beautiful construction. The word bring, that he might bring us to God. The word bring is prosagio. It means access. Same word for access in Romans 2. Same word for access in Ephesians 2. In ancient literature, prosagio meant having an audience with the king. Not many people were granted an audience with the king. But that's what Jesus' sacrifice did. Brought you before God. Brought me before God. That we have access of an audience with the God of glory. That he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit. Now let me stop there for a moment. The end of verse 18 is one of the most controversial phrases in the New Testament. That phrase is being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit. Why is that controversial? Well, let me share with you some theories as to how it's been interpreted. One theory is that Peter is contrasting Jesus' flesh and spirit. Remember, from Christian history, there were some powerful false doctrines that began to develop that separated Jesus' flesh and spirit. There are even false doctrines today that are outgrowths of those Mormons, Jehovah Witnesses that separate Jesus' flesh and spirit. So is Peter teaching that, that they're right? Is he contrasting Jesus' flesh to his spirit, two natures being split? But there's no definite article with either one. Usually, a definite article stresses the quality of the noun. So, that would be normal if Peter was wanting to contrast the body and the spirit. But he wasn't. So, that theory goes out the window. Theory number two. Getting a little more technical. 
But some people say that this is what's called an instrumental rather than a dative. What that means is, sarx for flesh, pneuma for spirit, are instrumental by the flesh and spirit rather than dative. That would contrast between wicked men and the Holy Spirit. However, with in the flesh being in the dative case, the dative of respect, probably what Peter intended was the instrumental. It's not who is responsible for Jesus' death. It's how he suffered in the flesh, alive in the spirit. But here's the third theory. Some say, well, the flesh is just talking about Jesus' death, and the spirit's talking about his resurrection. Okay, maybe. But that's sure redundant of Peter to say, if it's what he meant. Here's the fourth theory. It appears, the fourth theory is closer to accurate, that the flesh here, being made alive, uh, being put to death in the flesh, made alive in the spirit, the flesh would refer to Jesus' pre-resurrection condition and the spirit being his post-resurrection condition. Not two natures, but two viewpoints of one person. Before the, before the crucifixion, he was then put to death. And then after the resurrection, he's raised with the glorified bodies in the spirit. He took that body to heaven with him. He didn't change before he went to heaven. It's a spiritual body. So you're looking at one person, not two. One nature, not two natures, as the false teachings say. Because Peter did the exact same thing, chapter 4, verse 6. So it appears he is not teaching Jesus' nature split up, but his nature's one. We're just looking at one man with two natures before the cross and after the cross. Now let's go to verse 19, which gets even more controversial. Verse 19, in which he, Jesus, went and proclaimed to the Spirit's in prison. Okay, hold on. We time out. We got we got some questions here. What does that mean? Does that mean that Jesus, between the cross and the resurrection, three days, what did he do for three days? Just hang out? Or during those three days, did he go somewhere and preach? Well, let's look at five theories of this passage. Verse 19. One theory, Jesus went between the crucifixion and resurrection, those three-day three day period, he went to the realm of the dead and preached to the people of Noah's day. Go all the way back to Noah in Genesis. He preached to those people of Noah's day. Remember, they didn't listen to Noah, so they drowned in the flood. And he went and preached to them and said, ha ha, you were wrong. Or preached to them and said, you need to get saved. What's going on? Now, you say, why people of Noah's day? Because of verse 20, says it references Noah's ark. What does it mean Jesus preached? Was Jesus conducting a little missionary work in hell? I thought once you went to hell, you didn't get any more opportunities. Why would Jesus go preach in hell? Well, no scripture ever teaches once you die, you get a second chance. So we know that's not the case. 
that there's a probationary period. No, no passage ever teaches that. In fact, Luke 16 is very clear. The rich man and Lazarus die. Lazarus die. Very clear, your destinies are set. You don't get another chance in hell. But notice Peter does not tell us what Jesus preached. He didn't tell us what he said. But we get a clue. The word in the Greek for preach, proclaim there, is interesting. There are 15 different words in Greek that are translated preach in the English in the New Testament. We have one word, preach, and Greek has 15. That's why Greek is so hard to understand. It's so vast, the language is. There are 15 different words translated as preach. One of them is the word caruso. It means to herald, H-E-R-A-L-D, to herald. Hear you, hear you. You're making a proclamation. Another word is euangelizo. We get the word evangelism from it. It's preaching for a decision. Preaching so people will turn, come to Christ. Another word, kategelo, it means to declare something. Another word, kaleo, means to call out. Still translated preach. Another word, dialegami, means to reason with someone. They reason with them about the scriptures. Parisia means to speak boldly. Those are six of the 15. We'll go through all of them. So what word is used here? The word caruso. Meaning Jesus declared, he didn't offer an invitation, he made a declaration, he made a proclamation to the dead, victory has been won over you and over sin and over death, and he resurrected. So, it's translated preach, proclaim. But it means to herald, make a declaration, not asking anybody to get saved. Second theory, what happened here? Second theory is that Jesus preached to Noah's generation through Noah. Not, he didn't do anything between the crucifixion and resurrection. The second theory is, is that all the way back in Genesis when Noah preached, Jesus was in Noah preaching through them. Maybe. There are a lot, of, a lot of Bible scholars believe that's what this is talking about. Third theory. That Jesus proclaimed his victory on the cross to the demons. Not to Noah's generation, but to the demons in hell that they've lost. Death was the ultimate, the ultimate weapon Satan had that's about to be defeated. Made that proclamation. The third theory. You say, why would they believe that? Well, if you go all the way back to the Apostles' Creed, 5th century, the 400s AD, which is pretty far back, the Apostles' Creed said Jesus, quote, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, was dead, was buried, descended into hell, on the third day rose from the dead, and sits at the right hand of the Father. Now, the Apostles' Creed is not infallible Scripture. I get that. But it may have given us a clue as to how they thought in the 4th, 5th century, the 400s. They might have thought, hmm, you know, this means Jesus descended into hell and preached. 
So it may give us a clue as to what the early church believed. Theory number four. The word spirits there, this theory is that Jesus preached to those people alive after Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 and in bondage to sin and Satan. They're in bondage and he's, and he's preaching to those who are alive now. Well, the only problem is verse 20 puts it in the context of Noah's day. So it's out of context. Fifth theory, which is kind of odd, I think, but I'll, I'll throw it out there. This theory is that Jesus spoke to one of Noah's, to, I mean, to the ones of Noah's generation who were babies in the flood. They were babies. They, had, they didn't have a chance to respond to right and wrong. So it'd be kind of unfair for the babies to be swept up in the waters. They didn't sin. They were innocent. So it'd be unfair for, for, for him just to banish them to hell. So therefore, Jesus then, those that were babies in the flood that he was then preached to them that they could turn to Christ. Yeah, that's, that's a stretch. There's nothing in Scripture that backs that up. So, those are your five theories. Let me give you a few thoughts on this, then we'll close. First thought I had in, in interpreting verse 19, in which he went and proclaimed the spirits in prison, is that we know Jesus is Lord even of those who are under the earth. Philippians 2.10 tells us that. He's Lord of heaven, Lord of earth, and Paul says Lord of those under the earth. So somehow we think of the under the earth as the domain of Satan. No, Jesus is Lord over all of it. Satan's going to end up there, but he's Lord of everything, even under the earth. Another thought is the plural word spirits here only describes human beings who are dead one time in Scripture, Hebrews 12, 23. All the other times you see the word spirits, plural in Scripture, it's referring to evil spirits. It does that often. Matthew 10, Mark 1, Mark 3, Mark 5, Mark 6, Luke 4, Luke 6, Acts 5, Revelation 16. Many times you see the word spirits referring to demons. Therefore, we would expect demons are referred to here. Because he also said they're in prison later on. To 2 Peter 2, 4, he refers to demons in prison. And they were disobedient in the days of Noah. He's probably not talking about humans that have died. He's probably talking about demons. Another thought, Scripture knows of only one prison, hell. It's the place that confines spirits. So it appears he went and preached to demons in hell. The word phileiki, meaning prison, um, means to be guarded. It means to somebody watching you and you're restrained. Sounds like prison, sounds like hell. Revelation tells us that demons are restrained in hell, so it matches up with what John saw in the Revelation. Another thought I have about this verse is, uh, some people say this, but I don't think it teaches it at all. Some people believe this teaching shows there is an intermediary place like purgatory between heaven and hell. 
I don't think verse 19 teaches that at all. Martin Luther talked about this in verse 19, and he said Germans called it Totenreich, the realm of the dead. And Linsky says, another German scholar says, the concept of Totenreich would be a strange translation for Phileke prison. He said, in fact, purgatory is, quote, just an invention of the human mind. Purgatory is not a part of Scripture. We either go to heaven or we go to hell. But this is not teaching a purgatory. Prison is never interpreted as, a, as an intermediate place. Another thought. Some scholars believe that this is talking about the incident that happened in Genesis 6, verses 1 through 4. Some of you may know that passage, 6, 1 through 4, says it's an odd passage, but it says that the sons of God and the daughters of men had sexual relations, and what resulted were giants, the Nephilim that were on the earth, and that this passage is referring to what happened back there in Genesis 6. But the pro- there are some problems with that view. The incident evidently did not take place during the construction of the ark, but before it. So in verse 20, we know it's right. He's referring to Noah's day, not Genesis 6. Not only that, um, it's improbable that the sons of God were angels because Jesus told us, Matthew twenty-two thirty, 30, angels don't procreate. So that interpretation couldn't be angels. Some people say about this passage, it's a more probable explanation that these spirits were the unbelievers who disobeyed God in Noah's day. And now that their spirits long died, their bodies are awaiting the resurrection to be judged by God, like Revelation 20 talks about. But most likely, it's the, the spirits, evil of the be demons, in hell. It appeared God, Jesus, descended and proclaimed to hell, you've lost. And then he resurrected. God would bring those in Asia Minor through persecution, just as he brought Noah and his family through those days of persecution as well. So he's making the connection of persecution. Now, next Wednesday night, we'll pick up with verse 20, because verse 20 has another controversy about it, and that is, is he teaching in verse 20 that baptism saves you? We'll look at that next Wednesday night. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word tonight. Thank you for the ability to to study it together, to see what you said through Peter, how it relates to us today. And Jesus, I want to thank you. Dear God, you suffered once for my sins. You brought me access to God himself. Jesus, I just want to thank you that you were put to death in the flesh, but made me alive in the spirit, and you proclaimed victory over death and hell. God, I am a beneficiary of that, and I want to thank you. So many others are tonight as well, watching online and so many sitting here, and I want to thank you for what you've done. God, continue to teach us through your word how we need to be so we can live the way you want us to live. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. God bless you. We will see you Sunday.